0: Hi, welcome to The Kicker. I'm Kyle Pope, editor and publisher of the Columbia Journalism Review. This week, continuing the coverage of the coronavirus. So you may not have noticed because there's so much else going on, but this week is in many ways the worst week of the coronavirus so far in terms of the number of people who are getting sick and the number of people who are dying and the the really intense focus on a, a few pockets of the country, especially California and Los Angeles. And it's got us thinking yet again of what should journalism be doing better in writing about this story. I continue to think every day that goes by that too much of the coverage is about the politics and too much of the coverage even is about the science and coverage isn't enough on the almost 400,000 people who have died. That is more people by, by a big factor than died from the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki and it made me think that I would love to talk to Leslie Bloom about this. Leslie is the author of a book called Fallout, which is a totally riveting profile of John Hersey, the New Yorker writer who wrote the story Hiroshima for that magazine. Her book is called Fallout, and the the subtitle of the book is The Hiroshima Cover-Up, and the reporter who revealed it to the world, which raises a, a, a couple of interesting questions on its own. But it turns out that A lot of the issues that journalists are struggling with now in terms of like slowing down, telling a big story, telling a story of, of tragedy in a way that resonates with people was just as hard then as it is now. And Hersey sort of cracked the code a bit and understanding how he did that is really helpful for us moving forward here. Leslie, thank you so much for joining me.
1: I'm so happy to be on. Thanks for having me.
0: I I really loved this book. Mainly, I I loved it because even though I, like every other journalist, sort of grew up knowing that Hiroshima was this amazing piece of long-form narrative, I didn't know any of the backstory, um, which is so resonant today. The backstory includes the fact that most of the press corps after the war and after the bombs had been dropped had sort of moved on had sort of like thought that the Hiroshima story had been told, you would think that there would be a million people wanting to do what he did. And that just wasn't the case.
1: Yeah, no, there were, it was more like half a dozen spread out over a long period of time with, you know, three main uh, allied or, or correspondents affiliated with Western publications um, in the very beginning during the chaos of the initial occupation. Um, this was an astonishing find for me also. And, you know, by the time September 2nd of 1945 rolled around, there were, you know, hundreds of allied correspondents who were um, in or around Japan getting ready to cover the surrender ceremony. And yet uh, we only had. Have, you know, three who who successfully um, well, first of all, who wanted to go to Hiroshima and Nagasaki enough to actually get there to get the get the scoop of what it looked like on the ground, um, and it would take uh, thirteen months, um, nearly thirteen months for for the the full. a a full and impactful story about, um, the true effect of the atomic bombs, um, in those cities and in general to come out. And that came out with, you know, Hersey, John Hersey's report in the August 31st, 1946 issue of the New Yorker magazine.
0: And, and part of the reason that that is the case One was that because this was a war situation and the the United States military was controlling a lot of the information, in fact, you had to get credentials from them to even go to Japan, right? So that accounts for some of the reason why there wasn't more detailed reporting about the after effects
1: well i think look i mean again it depends on what period of time in that year you're talking about and in the immediate you know as so reporters were were, um we would call them embedded today you know they were attached to different military units and you know a lot of those different allied military units were converging upon japan in the last week of, of august and the first day you know september 1st to get ready for surrender ceremony and um you know so once once those guys were landing you know even though a significant number of the cities in japan had been bombed out there was still infrastructure like a surprising amount and so you know you could actually take the train to hiroshima um and you know there were ways to get down to to nagasaki if you were really determined and you could you could get away from what you know your pros your press relations officers in the in the military um, so yes, on the one hand you know you were you were with your military units and there was no way you were getting into Japan without them at this stage and and even in the in the war in the year that followed. but on the other hand, you know these allied correspondents who were coming in, many of them were you know hardcore war journalists who had been not only in the field since 1939 but since you know had covered the Spanish Civil War before that right and you know so they so a few among them were, completely nonplussed about, you know, would be guardrails put up by PROs. And, you know, they went what we would call unilateral today. And and they found ways to break away from those restrictions because they really wanted the story. Um, Their measure of success in in terms of the three people who did get in in the early days, um, in terms of actually getting that story out, varied significantly.
0: Was there something else about the way journalists think about their job that accounted for why there wasn't a bigger appetite for people to go in and spend time with victims of this horrific attack in the way that Percy did?
1: I, I think, look, it's a complicated question, and I think there's a you know a nuanced answer. I think that you know for when when many journalists who were in the field, especially in the Pacific theater first heard, you know, on the radio that the atomic bomb had been dropped on Japan. I'm sure that many people were like, I want that scoop, you know, because it was going to be the biggest, one of the biggest stories of, of the war. Um, and gradually it was dawning on editors and journalists, you know, when they realized the enormity of the bombs, that it was one of the biggest stories ever because, you know, mankind had invented the the means with which to destroy civilization. And so um, there was an, a, a great appetite initially um, you know, to try to get in on the ground and see what the bombs had done, you know, underneath those mushroom clouds in, in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. But I think um, you know, first of all, only a few of them were really determined enough to break away from their allied, um, you know, from their allied protectors and their PROs. Um and I think, you know, there were a couple, a couple of different factors. I mean, first of all, again, in the very earliest days. The Allied troops and reporters alike, the Allied reporters, had no idea what their reception was going to be in Japan because, you know, for for years the the predominant line had been the the Japanese are fanatical, they will fight to the last man. You know, a lot of the journalists who came in um, with the troops were were packing heat, um, even though it was against the Geneva Conventions. And so if you were going to try to break away and go independently down to Hiroshima and Nagasaki, even though travel throughout the country was restricted by the occupation forces... Um, you were facing down, you know, the danger that you, you could be assaulted or killed by, you know, the Japanese, Japanese themselves. And so, you know, there were so many layers of risk that I could see how that would have been really inhibiting, even for people who had been, you know, covering combat situations up to this point. But the fact is, is that three um, three journalists again uh one of the first was a a, a gentleman named Leslie Nakashima who had actually um been uh, uh stuck in in Japan throughout the duration of the war he got down to Hiroshima uh in the last week of August he got the first allied report out through UP United Press um the second was a, a hardened Australian war correspondent named Wilford Burchett, who was um reporting for the Daily Express and his uh, report was the most um, the most impactful, um, and then finally, um, one final uh, reporter got in who was a Chicago Daily News reporter, and George Weller. And his report he got into Nagasaki. His report actually was um, intercepted and quote unquote lost by occupation authorities because by the time Weller got in, uh, the occupation authorities were set up enough to to really start a, a censorship apparatus. So
0: one of the decisions that Hersey made along with his editors at The New Yorker was that he wanted to tell the story through a group of people, a fairly small group of people who could sort of represent victims in general. Um, and he came, ultimately came up with this um, approach where these, these characters sort of are interwoven and we sort of see and, and relive what happened through them. That's become almost a kind of journalistic trope since. But how unusual was that approach at the time?
1: I mean, it was, I mean, Hersey basically invented it. And in terms of, you know, use for journalism, he was inspired by literary use of that approach. Um, And so he had read a book um, called The Bridge of uh, San Luis Rey, in which there are a handful of characters who um, it it documents their lives in the lead up to they're all all in a bridge and the bridge snaps and they all die at the same moment. And so Hersey had the idea of using that literary device and applying it to journalism and and profiling um, ultimately six, uh, six Hiroshima survive. I don't even want to call them survivors, but you know, witnesses, blast survivors, um, who had uh, experienced, been on the receiving end of nuclear warfare that day. And he he did it in a really intimate way. Like these were what we would mm-hmm. call in the states, you know, regular folks. Mm-hmm. And you know, so it was a way of of making the the event relatable. Um, this is not you know vocabulary he would have used at the time, but it's how we you know would describe it today. And so. You know, the, the story of the atomic bomb was just so unbelievably big. And a lot of the language in, in the coverage of it beforehand had been sort of pseudo-biblical. And you know, not the, the average reader can't really fathom the enormity of, of the 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 damage or, you know, the true consequences of having entered into the atomic age or even, you know, understand the physics of how the bomb works. But what they can relate to, and Hersey, you know, was really smart in realizing this is that, you know, they can relate to the story of six regular people, you know, a mother, a widow with three young children, a female clerk, young, um, you know, a a doctor, a young doctor who's just out of medical school, you know, a a priest, um, you know, with a young family. Anybody can relate to, you know, the stories of of going about your, your daily routine when catastrophe strikes.
0: And that brings us exactly to where we are with the coronavirus because i i do sense from reading a lot of the coverage especially the day-to-day coverage that it's obsessed with the numbers it's obsessed with um debates about you know distribution policy for vaccines it's it's obsessed with blame why who's who's responsible for it not happening the way it should have happened but this story of 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 the victims, both people who have died and their families, but also people who have been sick, or also, frankly, those of us, people like me who are blessed to not be in either of those categories, but whose life has been um, dramatically um, changed, is not nearly enough, I don't think, of the journalistic discussion. I mean, when you did, – did your reporting on, on Percy start to ring – in your ears, when you started watching the pandemic to sort of unfold and the coverage of it unfold?
1: Well, I mean, I could have done with it being a little less startlingly relevant. I mean, believe me, I did not plan to write Fallout amidst, you know, a, a, a catastrophic global pandemic. Um, but, you know, absolutely, it became resonant. And, you know, Hersey, I felt, you know, had given today's journalists certain um, devices to be able to, to help illustrate the human the humanity behind the catastrophe um and you know when when Hersey and, and his editors at the New Yorker were looking at the story of Hiroshima initially, they realized you know that they had the same problem that you just described. A lot of the story had been told of, of you know the you know the, the bomb was this this equivalent you know in TNT twenty thousand tons. You know there were sixty eight thousand buildings that had been had been demolished. Um, you know here was the casualty count you know unknown, but around hundred thousand. I mean, and so you know the, the grasping of those. Clinical statistics, while they were awesome statistics, they were they just didn't resonate in a, in a human way, and you know. So obviously, we're seeing that with COVID, and I mean, it's hard to it's hard to fathom the humanity in a catastrophe sometimes when you're still really in the throes of it, and we are yeah. at this moment. Yeah. Um, but I mean, as you you know, rightly pointed out in your introduction, the the reported death toll in America. Um, has now far exceeded the combined death toll in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, even at the upper ends of the estimates, you know, combined. Um, and, you know, we're, we're nearing 400,000 casualties and, it, and we had 418,000 casualties in world war two alone, and that's combat and civilian. So, I mean, the, the scope of this catastrophe is so staggering, And the more the statistics build up, the less fathomable it becomes. And yet the ironic thing about it is that, you know, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, you know, it didn't intimately touch the lives of every American. I mean, it was just another catastrophe news story. It was another wartime story. Right. But COVID has touched the lives of every single human on this planet. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, so the fact that, you know, there has been, you know, not very much intimate storytelling about how the, you know, how this is upended um, communities is, is, is ironic, is quite ironic. And, you know, I think this is something that people, you know, journalists can look to Hersey for, for guidance.
0: I mean, I, I think it has something to do with the way beats are constructed and the way people's jobs are kind of defined. Like, you know, you have a cops reporter and a crime reporter and, a um, and in Washington, you have a Congress reporter and a White House reporter. And, but, you know, maybe we need like, uh, somebody who's and, and this, you're starting to see a little bit of a, of this, but maybe we need people whose beat is, is death or whose beat is dislocation. Humanizing
1: death. You know, I mean, just, I, I think that, you know, having a beat of, of humanizing catastrophe is actually a really interesting idea. Not one I, I would have thought of, um, before, before you brought it up, but it's, it's, it's pretty brilliant. Um, thank you. You're welcome. (laughs) But I think, you know, at the same time, though, Kyle, I mean, Hersey was a general reporter. And, you know, he was a generalized war correspondent. He had been in, you know, theaters around the globe from, you know, from Europe to the Pacific. And, um, you know, it didn't it didn't require the savvy of a beat reporter to bring out this very human story, you know, you know, and, and, you know, not just a very human story, but the story that ended up bringing home to the globe, the true implications of having entered the atomic age and to do it again through intimate devices. I mean, that was, that was somebody who didn't spend his entire life concentrating on like, Oh, how do I, how do I get behind clinical mass casualty statistics? It was like, the thing about that was interesting about him is that he was always a humanist to begin with. And, you know, he, you know, was, he's an, he was an interesting dude. I mean, he grew up as the son of missionaries in China and he was not a religious guy, but he, he really dealt in compassion and he was always looking at the human angle, even in the wartime stories that he, that he covered. Um, And I just think that it really takes, you know, reporters who look through the events that they're covering with with that mindset, also it's a hard mindset to have when you're in the face again of staggering of a of a staggeringly overwhelming event like World War II or you know the worst global pandemic in a in a century, um, but it it will help, you know. And Kyle, you, you know, we we had talked in a previous conversation about you know newspapers are are trying in you know in their way sometimes to you know to humanize the the event and you know i live in los angeles and you know the los angeles time does a, a page i don't know if it's every day or every week but it's um you know faces we've people we've lost to covid and they'll do a, you know one page profile or a couple pages of you know 5 to 10 um people you know short biographies of their lives um you know and so that that helps but in a way they almost read like like obit pages Yeah, and you know like standard obit pages and and a lot of that's you know for readers is flyover country and so it's it's not um it's not having the effect that it needs to to have and so again it comes back to how do we how do we bring home the human element of this right now
0: now you said something earlier which i think is so important which is that um, back in in hersey's day a lot of the other correspondents had the feeling of like Oh well, we know this. We know this story. We know that the bomb was dropped. We know the numbers are huge. What what is there to say? And 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 I think that um, I think we are getting that now with COVID, where even even among even with profiles of people who have suffered or who have died, you I can sort of sense this this feeling seeping in of like well how is this going to be different from the last profile of mm-hmm. the person who died from COVID? Or do we really need another prof another reporter inside of a hospital that's struggling because they're overwhelmed? Isn't it going to read like all the other stories from the hospitals of people who are overwhelmed? And there is this just, there's this kind of always present, um, instinct and, and desire to move on. Um, and like we, 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 we gotta get on to the next door. We gotta we gotta keep moving forward. Um and I think it's I think it's a disservice. But um what what do you think about that?
1: Yeah, I think. Look, I mean, I think there are a few different factors that funnel into that, and um, you know, some of it is just fatigue, and uh, and and genuinely just not knowing how to keep coming back at a story and make it fresh. And I remember when I when I was starting as a journalist, I worked at Nightline in the Ted Koppel days, and um, one of the big stories when I first started was there was a. a, a, a several weeks, if not months of suicide bombings in Jerusalem. And every night we were covering it. And it was like, you know, the story just felt the same night after night. And I remember there was this very, it was, it sounds very cynical outside of the journalism community, but one night there was a female suicide bomber and it was like, Oh, finally there was a new angle to the story. And and so it, it like energized the newsroom to be able to tell the story in a different way. And it was, it, this sounds very um, dark, uh, but, uh, I mean, I think that there are genuine challenges to to how to, you know, not just maintain journalist interest in how to tell an ongoing story that has so much repetition, no matter how awful it is. Um, again, you know, as I said earlier, fatigue comes into it. And then also, I mean, there's, you know, there's always the issue of next scoop mentality. Um, yeah. And, and you know, everybody always wants to be the one to break the next the 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 story that ushers in the next chapter of a situation and so I mean that definitely happened in the coverage of Hiroshima and Nagasaki and so um, you know again hundreds of of Allied war correspondents um, were on the ground in Japan within the first days of of the occupation and then many stayed on the ground to open bureaus for all of the huge publications and, and news services and um, you know even though the story of the bomb had not been covered adequately. It had been um, covered fr- like in a very frenzied sort of way, mm-hmm. and so it, the, the idea was was like, okay, well, what's going to be the next version of that? What's what's the next biggest story on the ground in Japan? And you know, immediately, all those reporters were looking for a way to make their mark, and so was it going to be. Um, you know, was the Japanese High Command going to be tried for war crimes? Um, was Japan going to become a foothold um, for you know in the the rising Cold War against Russia? So they're all looking at the communist movement. I mean, it was amazing how literally within days and weeks they were looking at the next story and and fe- like in a fiercely competitive way. So I think it does end up, you know, it, it, I feel like that mentality is ingrained in journalism. I don't think it's ever going to go anywhere. Um, but I think that you're right in, in that unless somebody special within the press corps does what Hersey did, is, did and takes the step back and really looks at the reporting and realizes the inadequacy of it and then chooses to do sort of a more monumental uh, reporting uh, project um, than then we, we – we move on and, and we, we, we miss, you know, the really important storytelling um, and really important revelations. And Hersey's, you know, one of Hersey's own report uh, editors at, at the New Yorker, Harold Ross was frantic at the end of world war two. Um, because even though he had correspondence, you know, around the world and, and New Yorker did, you know, surprisingly high, you know, heavy hitting reporting during, during that conflict. Um, he said that, everybody was moving on so quickly that there were going to be a number of atrocity stories that just were never going to be told because the press corps Mm -hmm. was moving on too quickly. And when the press corps moves on, then the public readership moves on too. And so, you know, so a lot of, again, a lot of stories don't get told that need to be told.
0: Yeah. And I, I think, I think that's a universal through line of how journalists think, but it's gotten worse. It's been, it's just been sped up by, um, social media, I think, which, which, um, has even shortened the news
1: cycle. I mean, we've, we have, we have, as you were saying earlier, we've, we've had a 24 hour news cycle for, for, for decades. And, you know, even in the world war II era, it was, it was radio, it was newspapers. I mean, there were, you know, gazillion editions of each newspaper and, you know, every city had, you know, know, tons of newspapers. Um, but I agree that the social media environment is like, you know, it's not just every scoop is, you know, a, 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 an article that is you know carefully honed it's like you know every new york Times, every, every reporter like puts out every increment of their new information with breaking or new or just in on twitter and you know it's just um a, a really feverish manic mentality um you know and to, to your point you know maybe the solution isn't just you know individual reporters taking it on themselves to say you know well we need to do a step back here but maybe there does need to be something more structural, more institutional, where editors, you know, will you know, highlight a few of their uh, reporters who are really good with bigger picture. And, you know, there's maybe there's a, a monthly or, a, you know, every six months or something or, or it, it, situationally, you know, a, a meeting where they, where they sit back and they say, you know, look, how do we how do we come at this in a way that makes this really, really penetrate? Um, you know the new york times ran i think in december maybe november um they did a, a huge profile uh, or a huge feature on the emergence of the coronavirus in in new york in one neighborhood mm-hmm. um and that focused on a handful of, you know of characters and i think it was a queens neighborhood and you know during the earliest days of the pandemic and i thought that was you know really a step in the right direction mm-hmm. um Again, because we're in the middle of the, of the catastrophe, I don't know how much of an appetite there is to look back at the origins of it just yet, but it was, it was helpful to see that an edit, you know, editor and reporting team had made the decision to do that kind of reporting.
0: Yeah. You know, finally, um, reading in your book about the response to Hersey's story was to me also kind of maddening because what happened is a lot of the same news organizations that could have done it <laughs> and didn't, where sort of like they went on a, a new sort of mini scramble to like report on Hersey's story. Do you know what I mean? So it's like, hey, this this is this, this this massive um, uh, piece has just been published in the New Yorker, and there's a sort of scramble to to talk to Hersey and his editors, and and it, it was maddening to me because
1: it was like, well, you guys should have done that story. Um, yeah, did absolutely. You, did you have the same thought? Of, well, of course. I mean, and and I mean, especially again all of the, the, the heavy-hitting news organizations had bureaus or correspondents on the ground from day one of the occupation if not before of, you know the, the occupation um, you know officially began and um, the New York Times had um, a, a guy who was the was the the sole journalistic witness to the, the bombing of, of Nagasaki and you know they, they had guys on the ground all the way through I mean one of their reporters atomic um Bill Lawrence or William Lawrence but his nickname was Atomic Bill the Nagasaki guy he was um had been picked at personally by General Leslie Groves the head of the Manhattan project to come in as the unofficial historian of the of the project but he was also reporting simultaneously for the New York Times on payroll of both war department and and the times and i mean he he had a front row seat to the development testing and military use of the bombs that nobody else had, but the New York Times did not cover the bomb in the way that that Hersey did. And crazily enough, later on, you know, its future managing editor, who was, who was a New York Times guy, you know, in the lower ranks at the time of the, the Hiroshima bombing, said that, even he and his colleagues in-house at the New York Times did not realize the enormity and implications of the bombing until Hersey's report, even though they had that incredible, unprecedented, unparalleled, exclusive access. Um, so, you know, it was, but what was interesting, additionally interesting, was there was like a comparative gallantry that a lot of these um of course these organizations that had missed the scoop totally that they showed to hersey and to and to the scoop for the most part and you know the new york times i mean the few of their editors they they tipped their hat to hersey not just you know in, in phone calls to to the new yorker but also in their editorial pages and you know they basically they ate crow they had to basically admit that they had missed the story that the New Yorker, which, by the way, still was a, a niche humor magazine for the most part when they broke this story. The New York Times basically had to admit that it had missed the story and that Hersey really had um, brought into question the morality of the the use of the bombs. And mm-hmm. it, you know, so it was it was a, a, an astonishing story. Um, uh, there there it was astonishingly good behavior um you know other other publications were not so um well-mannered about it um yeah. they, but,
0: they accused him of being a propagandist for the um, for the japanese right
1: yeah so, some some publications you know accused him of being a propagandist for the japanese and and an you know uh, an apologist and um even uh being you know in service of the russians um who were then you know emerging enemy number number 1 um, and then also, you know, some of them just made fun of the hype surrounding the scoop, but that was, you know, really sour grapes. So, you know, like Henry, Henry Luce's Time magazine of which Hersey was actually an alum, you know, had, had did some sour grapes coverage. But, you know, for the most part, editors around the world and reporters around the world who had been very conspicuously scooped, again, tipped their tipped their hats to Hersey and to the reporting. And after that point, there was never any there was not levity in the reporting um, or dismissiveness in the reporting about um, the atomic bomb and mm-hmm. uh, and again the implications of having entered into the atomic age um, because Hersey had had really showed not only what the bomb was capable of doing to human beings and had done in Japan, but what it had in store for every human everywhere around the the, the planet um, if the issue was not taken seriously.
0: So let me ask you, finally, I I referred at the very beginning to the deck of the book. It's not the deck. What do you call it? What do you call it? The the subtitle. Subtitle. Sorry. (laughs) Um,
1: It's
0: been a long week. It's called the Hiroshima cover-up and the reporter who revealed to the world. The the cover-up was the effort by the government to keep the details of the horrendous nature of the bombs from the public. Keeping that information from reporters. How afterward is cover-up do you think in talking about the coronavirus, if at all, in terms of um, uh, reporters getting information, access to information they need to tell the whole story of what's happening?
1: I think that the uh, use of the phrase cover-up in terms of how the initial story of coronavirus was rolled out by our government is 100% accurate. Um, and I think that we are going to learn more about how much was known and how much was covered up in the coming months and years. And it's going to blow our minds, not in a good way. Um, and I think, you know, one of the reasons why, you know, my book documents, you know, a world war, end of World War II event, you know, 75 years ago. And you would think that this was was deep history. But again, it ended up taking on a resonance in 2020 when it came out because, because precisely the word coverup was on everybody's mind because people felt that they were being lied to by, by the U S government. And they were. Um, and I, I, think, you know, there's going to be so much investigative reporting in, in the immediate future and long-term future on, on the, the rollout of information about COVID, you know, starting from, you know, December of 2019 through, let's say June. Um, I mean, it's, it's going to, it's going to be completely career devouring. People are going to devote themselves to, you know, to to illuminating the full extent of how much was kept from us.
0: Mm. Leslie, thank you so much. Uh,
1: My pleasure. Thank you again for, for making the time to speak with me.
0: Again, the book is called Fallout. You can read CJR's coverage of, the virus and everything else going on in the world at cjr.org read our daily email newsletter the media mm-hmm. today or watch us on facebook or twitter thanks for listening see you next week